Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Megan Kelly, welcome to the Megan Kelly Show on a Friday. Joining me today, Glenn Greenwald, one of my very favorite people, a brilliant, brilliant journalist and just all around good guy. He's the co-founder of The Intercept, author of Securing Democracy and a Substack journalist. We've got so much to cover from the new crisis at our southern border, the rising two-class system in America that pins the masked against the unmasked, updates on General Mark Milley's communications with China, and now he's speaking out in his own defense, and incredibly new proof today that the endless Russiagate scandal uh, was, as we now know, a setup. But wait until you hear the evidence that's just come out. Glenn, so good to have you here. Thanks for being here. Always happy to be here, Megan. I think uh, in addition to that very generous introduction, I also need some kind of indication that I'm a very special friend to the show, since some of your listeners may not know that I was actually the first guest, the debut guest that helped launch it. I'm very proud of that. And I'm That's exactly thrilled right. to, that, to see your success. Thank you. We owe it all to you. Really, we should have had you on the first day of the serious launch. Not this all is close to me, enough. maybe like 80%. You've also done <laughs> a lot of work for the show, too. Well, you know, you actually were an inspiration when I started the podcast because our conversation was so good. It remains one of our most downloaded episodes, our very first podcast ever, September of last year, um, that I was like, I am doing the right thing. This is what I want to be doing. Long form conversations with smart people from whom I can learn. I don't have to get up and down on the story in two minutes. You know, it was sort of a, a taste of what was to come. That's nice. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think this format brings out the best in everybody. All right. So let's talk about uh, the news of the day, which is which begins with a guy named Michael Sussman. This story is incredible. And I recommend that everybody read. Well, you should read Andy McCarthy on National Review, no matter what, because he's brilliant. But especially if it involves something legal, he's always got great insights. And he has a great piece today that walks us through what the story is with Michael Sussman. Um, Broad brush. Here's what's happened. We've gotten an indictment now in the John Durham investigation. He was the special counsel appointed to look into how the hell did Russiagate happen? How did we have, you know, uh, uh, th- all of these accusations being hurled around and, and, and impeachment and all of this based on a bunch of nonsense? So we have the special counsel, John Durham, looking into it, and he has just secured a grand jury indictment. His investigation is not over, but he had to do it because the, the five year statute of limitations against this one guy was about to run uh, this set this Saturday or Sunday. So he's gotten an indictment against Michael Sussman. Who is Michael Sussman? He's a prominent cybersecurity lawyer who happened to work for Hillary Clinton's campaign, who went into the FBI five years ago and said, basically, there's 
there's a problem. There's a back channel communication based on our expertise between Trump Tower and this Russian bank that's essentially a front for Vladimir Putin and then did not disclose to the FBI that he was working for the Clinton campaign. He went in there, Glenn, like, I'm just a public servant. I'm just a cybersecurity expert who sees a who sees smoke where there must be fire, FBI. And he's speaking to the general counsel of the FBI at the time with whom he had a relationship and didn't disclose any of his campaign ties. Uh, and apparently, according to the FBI, anyway, he's denying it when asked specifically denied that he was representing the Clinton campaign. And what Andy McCarthy's reporting shows us, because he, he read the whole indictment, is at the same time, the guy was denying his relationship with the Clinton campaign, Glenn. He was billing his very time meeting with the FBI back to the Clinton campaign. <laughs> so it seems like they've got him dead to rights if they can prove any of this. And all of this tells us what. So this is the second indictment that the Durham investigation has uncovered or extracted. The first one took place in January when an FBI lawyer pled guilty to having lied to the FISA court, submitting altered documents to the FISA court in order to persuade that court to issue warrants to allow them to spy on Carter Page, who, as everyone might remember, was a former official of the Trump campaign. It was somebody that Russia gators and liberal fanatics adamantly believed was about to be in prison, that he was a Russian agent. And when the Mueller report came out, they said they couldn't find any evidence that Carter Page ever was acting as an agent for the Kremlin. But they lied to the FISA court. The FBI did. And Durham got a guilty plea from the FBI Eiler who actually altered documents to convince the FISA court to let them spy. So this is the second time now that he's found alleged criminality, not as part of the alleged Trump-Russia collusion that consumed the media and our politics for four years or more, but as part of the origins of that scandal. Who is it that created that scandal and how is it that it got disseminated? And so the fact that, you know, people, there, there were so many media frauds, Megan, as part of the Trump-Russia story that I think people have forgotten them all. But this issue about Trump supposedly having a secret server that allowed him and his organization to communicate with this Russian bank was very consequential during the 2016 campaign, mm -hmm. in large part because they got one journalist, Franklin Foer, who used to be the editor-in-chief of the New Republic at Slate now, who wrote an article ratifying it all. They got Hillary Clinton herself to issue a statement during the campaign, tweeting it, saying, this is extremely disturbing. We know that Jake Sullivan, who at the time was with the Clinton campaign, is now Biden's national security advisor, was deeply enmeshed in this story. And then you had all of these Russiagate personalities on TV who profited so much from pushing this conspiracy theory, Chris Hayes and Natasha Bertrand, who now is at CNN, all of those MSNBC people who for two years claimed that this story was very substantial. And one of the things the indictment says, and I think it's the reason why they're so angry at this lawyer who went to them and, and pushed it, was the FBI quickly concluded that there was actually no evidence to it, that this was a very ordinary kind of internet activity, that there was no evidence there was any communication, let alone a clandestine server between Trump and the Russians. So the FBI learned very quickly that the story was false, but let the media for two years treat it as though it were real. And they're now kind of trying to scapegoat this lawyer who definitely is to blame 
by saying, oh, he tricked us. If he had told us the truth that he was working for Hillary Clinton's campaign, we wouldn't have even looked at it. We would have known it was just a political trick. But by hiding from us the fact that he was working for the Clinton campaign and pretending he was just an ordinary citizen, we spent our time and resources chasing it down, but quickly realized there was nothing to it. Mm -hmm. This is what Rick Grinnell just said on Fox News. He was like, he's basically throwing the hooey card on the claim by the FBI that they didn't understand right from the get go that this guy was a Hillary Clinton campaign operative and was not there as just Joe Good Citizen. Uh, Here's Rick on Fox the other night. I don't believe that the FBI officials were duped by an outside lawyer working with Hillary Clinton who lied about his client. Inside the FBI, the Russian collusion investigation continued, not because some lawyer lied to them about who he was working for, because the FBI leadership knew this information was wrong. They knew it was made up. They continued the investigation because it would help Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're saying. But that doesn't really help Michael Sussman today because you can't lie to the FBI, even if the FBI was like, this guy's probably a liar. You can't do it. And they have a new problem to deal with, which is this investigation. Right. I mean, John Durham, he he didn't waive any right uh, to to pursue this claim. And so Michael Sussman's going to have to answer for, you know, mistruths that he offered to the FBI. But it's, it's beyond that, Glenn, right? Because what they allege is that this guy, Michael Sussman, was working for the Hillary Clinton campaign and for another client and the other clients unnamed. But apparently this other client expected to get an important government cybersecurity position in the Hillary Clinton administration. And this guy, this unnamed guy, ran a tech company. And the FBI or John Durham, I should say, his people have spoken, I guess, with the employees of this tech corporation who say our boss made us run extensive queries regarding Donald Trump and his campaign and their databases. And we were uncomfortable doing this kind of spying um, because, you know, we knew it was wrong. But our boss is a very powerful person and made us do it. And we went to our boss and said, you know what? The evidence is pretty weak. This is a weak sauce. Like, as you point out, this is sort of very benign server activity that you're trying to claim is a link to Russia and that that executive was like, I don't care because basically this is a political project. So this is what we have here is this tech exec who wanted a job in the Hillary administration and Hillary campaign, the Hillary campaign, a lawyer very connected with the Clinton campaign using privileged access to non-public information. This is from Andy McCarthy now for political purposes. They concoct it into a political narrative that they know is baseless, but they can convincingly spin it to suggest Donald Trump is in cahoots with Putin. They simultaneously peddle it to lie to the media and the FBI. By the way, they got it placed in the Steele dossier too, the, the infamous Steele dossier. And the FBI opens an investigation of Donald Trump because team Clinton, Team Clinton has made it happen. It's all there, black and white. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. And to me, the overarching point of everything you said, of what Andy McCarthy wrote, of what Rick Grinnell said on Fox, to me, the overarching point is that whatever wrongdoing there was on the part of Trump related uh, actors, most of which, if not all of which, took place not prior to the Mueller probe, but during it. Almost all of the convictions were process crimes. If they lied to Mueller, they covered up evidence, things like that. No one was convicted or even charged on the core allegation that launched the entire scandal and launched 
the Mueller investigation, which is, did any Americans criminally conspire with the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election? That was the core foundational claim that the Clinton campaign made that led to that four-year scandal. And not only did Robert Mueller close his investigation by indicting zero people, zero Americans, on that central claim, he also issued a report in which he said he couldn't find any evidence to establish any criminality with regard to that. So what I think this is starting to show is that there was real criminality in connection with Russiagate and during the 2016 campaign. It just is the the, the criminality and the corruption was done by those who propagated the yes. Russiagate conspiracy theory and peddled the scandal, both in politics and law and in media and in government and not the people who they spent all that time accusing. Let me just make a couple quick points um, yeah. on on some of what you just said. So as to Rick Rennell's point that like he seriously doubts that the FBI really believed that uh, this Clinton lawyer, David Sussman, was just some average citizen, kind of like a whistleblower on his own accord going in. Of course, that's the case. You know, David Sussman was a partner in Perkins Wait, is it Coey, David or Michael? A, I think it's Michael, Michael Sussman. Michael okay, Sussman. Sorry. Am I saying David? <laughs> I'm like, how Michael many Sussmans Sussman? are there? Okay, yeah, Michael Sussman. Keep going. Yeah. So he's a partner in Park in Perkins Coey, which is a huge Wall Street or Washington law firm as well that's highly connected to the Democratic Party. One of the partners in that firm is Mark Elias, who has received a lot of social media stardom over the last four years. He was the general counsel to the Clinton campaign, the lead lawyer. In the Clinton campaign, he served in the same role during the John Kerry campaign in 2004. So the idea that there's a partner at this law firm that is very intertwined with the Clinton campaign and the Democratic Party for years and years and years, one of the most influential in Washington, just happened to stumble on this information as a private citizen, of course, is something that the FBI would never have believed. But I, you know, for me, Megan, I keep getting back to the fact that what to me this really is more than anything is a media story. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I was at The Intercept in 2016, when the story was published, we immediately, all of us, even the kind of hardcore liberals said, this story doesn't add up at all. There's zero evidence to justify a claim of this incredible. And we actually published an article by four journalists, all of whom have extensive tech, tech, tech experience in analyzing internet data. And it essentially said the story has huge evidentiary holes in it. But MSNBC and CNN and The Atlantic and The New Yorker and The New York Times were all off and running with it. And it became a major part of the campaign. So we can debate the legalities of it. I mean, it is interesting. The question of whether lying to the FBI should be a crime is something that was debated, at least for me, during the Michael Flynn prosecution. Mm -hmm. um, I actually agree with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and other longstanding liberals on the court that it shouldn't be a crime to lie to the FBI without more conduct to it. Otherwise, the FBI can kind of lure you into becoming yeah. a criminal like they did they with General Flynn yeah. by saying, tell us about that conversation. And you should have the right to deny to the FBI that you've done something you've actually done. But leave that debate aside. I took that side with the Michael Flynn case. It's still my view. It's Ruth Bader Ginsburg's view. That's not the prevailing view. The prevailing view is if you lie to the FBI, you're a criminal. That's how they prosecuted General Flynn. They prosecuted Martha Stewart that way. And they're now prosecuting this Hillary lawyer that way. So, you know, I still think, though, that the story is 
a political and media scam, that it was the media who participated in knowingly disseminating a story that had no basis in evidence from the start because they thought that it could manipulate the outcome of the election in Hillary Clinton's favor. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, I agree with you. So and I don't even think that um, that the Durham investigation is all that interested in Michael Sussman. They had to pull the trigger on this because the statute right. of limitations was about to expire. But I think he much would have preferred to come out with the full kit and caboodle when he's done and say, this is these are all the wrongdoers and this is how they concocted this narrative. But what's interesting about this case is that the indictment tells the story. You know, for for the first time, I think we get in great detail where John Durham's going, what evidence he's found. And you have it exactly right. This is going to be a sweeping indictment used not in the criminal sense, but possibly Possibly, uh, of the Hillary Clinton campaign and how she and her media and legal operatives unleashed this entire false narrative on all of us. And the media, desperate to bring down Trump, ran with it, completely checked their skepticism, their willingness, their, their responsibility to investigate and went with any story from the Steele dossier to all of this nonsense without bothering to check because it was too good. Yeah, I mean, that to me is the one of the principal uh, scandals of the Trump years uh, in the Trump era is what happened to American journalism. I've always been a critic of colleagues in the media. I've always had different views about how journalism should be done than a lot of people in kind of the corporate world of, of media companies. But my views of them radically changed as a result of their conduct during primarily the Russiagate scandal when I saw their willingness to, and this isn't an exaggeration, relinquish and sacrifice every precept of journalistic ethics and limitations on what we're supposed to do as reporters in this monomaniacal pursuit to first help Hillary Clinton win and then once she didn't to destroy Donald Trump's presidency. And it really is true, Megan. And I saw it from the inside. I saw it from reporting on this story for four years at the to the exclusion of almost every other, that it wasn't just recklessness, that they just weren't careful enough and how they were vetting this information. Anytime the CIA or the FBI or Adam Schiff or other Democrats on the committee, on the House committee or the Senate committee investigating Russiagate, leaked to them information that was incriminating about Donald Trump, they would instantly publish it without caring whether it was true or false. It wasn't that, oh, they looked and they didn't do such a good job. It was they didn't care. They wanted information in their hands in part because it served their political interests, but in part, it also served their pecuniary interests. You know, I know you've talked about this before. In 2015, MSNBC and CNN both were on the brink of collapse. Nobody was watching their shows. Yep. The New York Times was having serious financial difficulty. Trump in general, but Russiagate in particular, was a huge boon to, their, to the whole media industry. People, you know, were not just watching cable news at record rates for years because of their fears of Vladimir Putin and his relationship with Donald Trump and this conspiracy theory that he had taken over our country through blackmail, through the Steele dossier and the like. They were buying books and making many, many people rich who were peddling these conspiracy theories. The people who wrote it most, like Natasha Bertrand and others, got promoted. She started a business insider, then moved to the Atlantic, now is at CNN on television. It was great for all of their careers. It was great for the industry. And it also served their political interests of destroying Donald Trump at the expense of the, all of our politics. Our politics was swallowed oh, yeah. up by this fake scandal. M hundreds of millions of dollars spent chasing a non-existent scandal. 
And they were lying and disseminating knowing lies the entire time, both the, pol- the political circles of the Clinton campaign and their allies in the security state and their media uh, partners. And yeah, that to it, me Glenn. is the huge scandal. The the lies told by the media over and over, democracy dies in darkness, Washington Post. Okay, I look forward to their front page article about what what we've just learned and what we've been learning about the John Durham report and where it's going. Um, but look at look at MSNBC. You mentioned Chris Hayes. Rachel Maddow has never backed off of this. She was as deep into all this nonsense as anyone. There was a report, a report she was just renegotiating her deal with MSNBC. They reportedly were trying to get her to stay for $35 million a year. That's what that kind of lying gets you. $35 million a year at the NBC empire. Okay. There's no accountability. There's no disincentive to keep doing it. And people who watch her think that she's the most credible person in news. You know, there's, I would say there's four journalists who were most responsible for this Trump Alpha Bank story, which the indictment itself, and remember, this indictment was issued by John Durham, who's a longtime respected prosecutor, but with the approval of Merrick Garland, Biden's attorney general. So there's zero partisanship going on in the Durham investigation, at least so far as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly Mer- Merrick Garland approved this indictment, and this indictment says that this story was fake. And that the FBI concluded early on that it was fake. The reporters most responsible for pushing it, Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes, Natasha Bertrand, and Frank Foer, not one of them, Egan, not one, has even acknowledged this indictment or mentioned it, let alone held themselves accountable for what they did in light of these new facts. Why? Because they know their jobs don't require that. They know that their viewers don't care if they tell lies as long as those lies serve the right political side. That is the warped incentive scheme that has been created. I mean, you know, look, I was close friends with Rachel Maddow for a long time. I used to go on her show all the time. She's an extremely smart journalist, an extremely smart human being. But over the last five years, she became probably the single most partisan loyalist on television, even more than some of the people on Fox who I would put into that same category, willing to say or do anything as long as it advanced the cause of undermining Donald Trump. And as a result, she made one falsehood after the next, peddled one insane conspiracy after the next, theory after the next. You could watch her virtually crying on TV, talking about how Vladimir Putin is going to cut off all the heat to people (laughs) in North Dakota. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. That got debunked over and over. She was the prime champion of the steel dossier that has been now wild, wildly discredited. And as you say, not only didn't she suffer any repercussions, she got richly rewarded. And that was the incentive scheme that has now been created, which is if you lie on behalf of American liberalism, that is the way to succeed and thrive in journalism. And that's what's so deeply concerning. That's the thing. I don't even know that I, I was going to say she was used. She was used by them. But I think that's too generous to her. I think she was on the inner circle. She she understood. I I don't think she was duped. I think she understood that there was very good reason to doubt all of this. But she's so agenda driven and perhaps driven to line her own wallet uh, that she didn't care. Yeah, you know, it's always hard to know other people's motives, right? I mean, it's hard to know our own, but sometimes it could just be that you become such a fanatic, right? You become so fanatical and convinced that your cause is just that you lose willingly any moral constraints on what you do. You just tell yourself, I never need to pull back and ask whether what I'm doing is right or whether what I'm saying is true 
Because what I know foundationally is that my cause is so just, I'm such a deeply good person that anything I do is justified, kind of a means justify, an ends justify yep. the means mentality. And I think that was at least part of, of what her and so many other people in media ended up getting swept up. And some of them are just dumb. Some of them are just kind of yeah. susceptible to group thing because they don't have very good critical faculties. Yeah, a like, lot of them got are. A leak. And they're, I they're got kind a leak of from worse. the FBI. Yeah. All right. Now, um, I, I have to take this opportunity to give my husband one of my husband's books, um, a shameless plug. He's he's an author. His name is Doug Brunt. And he wrote a book called The Means, as in the means justify the ends. And it's about politics and media and how party people within both of those groups uh, too often have that very mentality. And it's a great novel that sort of takes you in depth on a presidential campaign. Anyway, uh, it was a bestseller. You'll love it. All right. I am joined by one of my favorite people, Glenn Greenwald. We're going to pick it up with him after the break on a couple of things. Mark Milley now speaking out in his defense. We'll tell you what he's saying. And we're going to dive into immigration because a new crisis has sprung up along our southern border, a surge of 10,000 people under a bridge right now. It's a humanitarian crisis. What is the Biden administration doing about it? Plus, Don Lemon is now calling for the shaming and shunning of some Americans. We'll get into that. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back, everyone, to The Megan Kelly Show, joined today by Glenn Greenwald, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Uh, I want to turn now to the southern border. 10,000 immigrants have arrived in Del Rio, Texas, over the last few days. And the FAA has implemented a two-week temporary flight restriction over the area, so no news drones can get proper footage right now of this unfolding crisis. Um, Glenn's got some thoughts on that and says everyone who cares about journalism should be demanding an explanation. And yet they're not. So let's just frame up the crisis before we get to the 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 ban on the airspace, Glenn. Uh, already we've got illegal crossings at a 20 year high, 21 plus year high. Thousands of Haitian immigrants that uh, are down there right now. They cross the Rio Grande. They're sleeping outdoors under a bridge in South Texas. It's being described as a humanitarian emergency. Uh, Customs and Border Patrol is saying this is unprecedented, an unprecedented logistical challenge. They don't they take they don't know what to do. How are they going to take care of all these people? There's like a bunch of porta johns. That's about all they have. They have no running water. They got nothing. Um, and this in the midst of a time in which in July we had 200,000 people apprehended at the border. That was a record in August. We had another 200,000 people apprehended at the border and only half of those were returned to Mexico. So that's an, a net of just 200,000 people coming into the United States. And, you know, sure, I'm sure they're being processed right now. In reality, what happens is they say they want asylum. We say, OK, show up for a, a court proceeding and only 15 percent ever get asylum. And then they're released back out into the United States. So the system is completely messed up 
from the get go. But this is happening because they believe Biden's going to give them a pass that they're going to be able to stay in the United States. This is their one chance. Now they're here. We don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is an element of truth to the argument that in a lot of these countries like Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua, the United States has been interfering in those countries for a long time, often fueling civil wars and over, you know, engineering coups and that a lot of the suffering that these people confront in these countries can be attributed to the fact that our own government has been a cause, not the only cause, but a cause of instability in that region based on the Monroe Doctrine that we control Latin America. So you can make the argument that we have some responsibility to the people in these countries, like, you know, like a lot of people believe we have responsibility to certain people in Afghanistan after having been there for 20 years, who we made promises to after destabilizing their country and the like. So that's an argument that I think we can debate about what is our responsibility? Should we be helping those countries? How do we help them? The problem is, is that this issue of immigration was probably the single most politicized one during the Trump years. Whenever I would try and get answers from people, what is it that Donald Trump has done that is so morally evil that justify these comparisons to like Adolf Hitler that make him the worst president in the world in your view, things that you said about George Bush, but now you like Bush and say that about Trump, they would instantly say his cruelty in terms of his treatment of immigrants. And so Biden made this a big campaign issue. So did the Democrats saying, we need to welcome these people. We need to be more humane to these people. And they heard that message as you should come. If you come, we will welcome you. And you don't need to debate that. That's what they say. And so the Democrats extracted a huge amount of political capital and political gain, manipulating the emotions of these immigrants who are fleeing for a lot of times very good reasons. They Their country is you know, drowning in, in crime and joblessness and all other kinds of problems. They're not evil people for wanting to leave. But the Biden administration played with their emotions by encouraging them to come, but then doing absolutely nothing to process them and hoping, and it turned out that it would be the case, that the media would lose interest in mm-hmm. everything that's happening at the border now that Donald Trump is no longer president. That's exactly right. And and she, Kamala Harris, was basically saying, OK, I'll do it. I'll be the person who takes care of the root causes of, of corruption down in Latin America. And forgive me for not remembering whether it was Guatemala or Ecuador, but she it was, was like, Guatemala. I, yeah. And she was like, I will hold, you know, I'll speak truth to power. I will hold you accountable. And and the, the president was like, well, it's not me. I'm good. And then all this corruption started to unfold around him. All these stories started coming out about his corruption. She was like, la, 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 I do not hear a thing. I don't know. Never mind all that stuff I said. So we're not holding anybody accountable for anything. Uh, we're not addressing root causes and we're not addressing acute results right here at our southern border. It's basically Greg Abbott who's going to have to deal with this by himself. You know, what's so interesting is the politics, the way the politics have changed around immigration is so fascinating to me. When I, you know, I first started writing about politics in 2005, that was when I kind of transitioned out of being a lawyer into being a journalist. And back then, the idea of what they called comprehensive immigration reform was being championed by George Bush and Dick Cheney. And it was viewed as kind of a plot by the Chamber of Commerce and big business and, you know, international capital to flood various markets with cheap labor in order to undercut unions and undercut the American worker, because people who are pro-business wanted a huge flood of immigrants because they wanted the labor market to be as saturated as possible so that wages would decline. And people on the left, like Bernie Sanders and labor unions, were famously anti-immigrant. 
as were a lot of civil rights groups on the grounds that the people who are going to suffer most from this uncontrolled immigration were likely to be African-Americans, American citizens who are black, who are going to lose their jobs as a result of this glut of immigrants. And now it's virtually unmentionable, taboo on the left, to even raise the question of whether it's fair to American workers, the people that the left is supposed to represent, or fair to these immigrants to have this huge flow of thousands and tens of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of people coming from the region in which I live, South America, Central America, that the United States is absolutely is completely ill-equipped to handle. And you see a humanitarian crisis, but also the more that enter, the more the American worker is harmed. And the politics have changed so dra- dramatically that if you're a Democrat, if you're a liberal, even if you're on the left, you have to see it through like an identity prism that either you're a racist or you're in favor of uncontrolled immigration. And I think that's really distorted the debate. All right, stand by because we're going to be right back with Glenn Greenwald. One second. Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Welcome back, everyone, in The Megyn Kelly Show. I'm joined now by Substack journalist Glenn Greenwald, and we're going to dive into General Mark Milley, because in recent days, this guy's been in some hot water over revealed communications with his Chinese counterparts. And Glenn, he is coming out today and defending himself. This is and keep in mind, this comes from a new book that's coming out from Bob Woodward and Bob Costa. Um, No more Woodward and Bernstein. Now it's Woodward and Costa. And um, so we haven't seen I haven't confirmed any of this stuff. No one has. But this is what they report, that that Millie um, basically subverted the chain of command and conspired with the Chinese to let them know that uh, if Donald Trump launched a nuclear attack or some other attack in his waning days in office, that Millie was in charge and he'd make sure it didn't happen. And um, that he looked at all of his top generals and said, you understand, procedure runs through me if, John, if Donald Trump gives such an order. Millie comes out today and says... Um, I think it's best that I reserve my comments on the record until I do that in front of the lawmakers who have the lawful responsibility to oversee the U.S. military. I will go into any level of detail that Congress wants to in a couple of weeks because he's supposed to be speaking to them. But apparently he's saying that he believes his behavior was perfectly within the duties and responsibilities of his job as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, saying that these calls are routine and were done to reassure both allies and adversaries in this case in order to ensure strategic stability seems like just another way of saying i did it but i had a good reason to do it your thoughts this was i think a really underrated dynamic in the trump years which is right from the beginning there were all kinds of reports about the cia purposely undermining trump they would celebrate it in the media they would say the CIA has decided that there's certain classified information they don't trust Trump to have because they're afraid he'll pass it to Russia or handle it irresponsibly. There were stories about Trump ordering troops to be removed from Syria and Pentagon officials and CIA officials deceived him into believing they had when, in fact, they just kind of moved them around, believing that it was a bad choice and their decision making was uh, better. And so there was always this, you know, fine line that the media had to walk between cheering these generals, you know, like John Kelly, who was the chief of staff of, of President Trump and, and, and General Mattis and uh, 
uh, H.R. McMaster, who is his national security advisor, heralding them for saying these are the people who are going to save us from Trump. And then on the other hand, saying, oh, there's no such thing as a deep state in the United States. Only hmm. crazy conspiracy theorists believe that. When the whole idea of a deep state, which comes from decades of foreign policy scholarship, is that if you have a, a democracy on the surface, but in, in, in back of it have this kind of permanent military and intelligence apparatus that acts as a backdrop or a safeguard against a president who was elected doing bad things, that's what a deep state is. It's something there that will override mm -hmm. the will of the elected leader by exercising their own judgment about what's best for the democracy. This is what happened repeatedly, and this seems to me to be to be what happened here, which is this was not a case where General Milley called a concerned adversary or other country worried about something to reassure him. He was calling the Chinese to essentially tell them that he would go behind Trump's back if Trump was doing anything that he thought was too threatening to the Chinese and would tell them about it without permission and would act to stop Trump. That is an extraordinary thing to do because it's to take away civ civilian control of our government and hand it to the military. Yep. And now you've got um, it's I think it's 26 Republican representatives, a uh, retired general calling for a military treason probe of General Milley saying, look, this is blatant disregard of civilian control. He gave aid and comfort to America's principal adversary, the Chinese Communist Party. His pledge to China is nothing less than outright treason, they say, to conspire with a communist, malfeasant, hostile and genocidal government about our intentions uh, or lack thereof with utter disregard to the implications of said promise on our national security uh, or our service members. It's nothing short of craven at best and treasonous. I mean, that's the thing that I can't get past, Glenn. If Milley did this, um, it's telegraphing so much to the Chinese, right? It's basically saying, I got a guy in the Oval Office who's a nutcase who in his waning days in office might launch a nuclear attack on you. Now, it maybe Millie's counterpart over in China was grateful for the information, but who the hell knows what the Chinese would have done with that information? Who knows whether they would have had plans to grab some of our guys so that if they were in a hostage situation or wanted to create one to sort of hold over our heads or if they scrambled some sort of jets or if they moved some aircraft carrier. I have no idea what the Chinese did, but you you can make a, go a good argument that we were less safe after Millie's phone call to his Chinese counterpart than we were beforehand. And I do feel like this guy, he might not only need to lose his job, he might wind up in cuffs. Look, I mean, beyond all that, like, do you trust Mark Milley more than Donald Trump, which is the debate that they want to have? Because they know a lot of people view Donald Trump as this kind of maniacal figure, especially after he lost the election and was mentally decomposing or whatever they claim. There's there the, the founders in drafting the Constitution foresaw the possibility that the elected president would become mentally imbalanced or unstable or otherwise incapable to exercise the duties of his office. And there's a provision in the Constitution ab mm -hmm. about how you handle that. The 25th Amendment, which is the cabinet can initiate those proceedings. The Congress can and you can remove or temporarily suspend a president if they're actually you know, kind of crazy in the way that Mark Milley was suggesting to the Chinese Trump had become. He didn't do any of that. He bypassed all of those constitutional processes, those democratic safeguards to basically seize control of the levers of power on his own, even though nobody elected him. And so, you know, I've been trying to think of an analogy to convince people who hate Trump to find this alarming. So, you know, you can imagine, say, in 2011, when Obama and the Obama administration really wanted to get involved 
in the NATO war in Libya to to take Gaddafi out. Um, Obama didn't really want to, but Hillary Clinton did and Susan Rice did and Samantha Power did and convinced him along with the French and the British to do it. And there was a big debate at the time. And the Republicans who controlled the House actually voted against authorizing that war. And Obama ignored that and went ahead with with bombing Libya anyway. And to this very day, Libya is a huge mess as a result. Imagine if a right wing general inside the Pentagon had called Gaddafi during that debate and Mm. said, hey, I just want you to know that anything Obama's planning with this war that I'm against, that I think is crazy and will unleash a huge crisis in, in, in that area and in Europe, I'm going to tell you about in advance. You'll never be taken by surprise by anything that we do. And I also give you my word that I'm going to do everything to stop Obama from executing this war, even though he's my commander in chief and under the Constitution, I'm duty bound to follow his orders. That would be treason, clearly calling an enemy of the United States with whom we were at war and vowing to give them inside classified information and to subvert the president in order to protect that country. That's exactly what General Milley did here. So whether it's illegal or not is something that I don't want to rely on Bob Woodward and Bob Costa's book in order to conclude. I'd like to see a process that investigates that and surfaces the evidence. But politically, it seems extremely dangerous not just that it happened, but that so many people seem comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking w- about this with Michael Smirkanish on his show on Sirius XM earlier today. And he was saying, and I agree with him, Millie probably is the source. Millie's probably Woodward's source. Millie wanted to make himself look good. Millie thought an yeah. adoring liberal base would think this is amazing that, you know, he was the stalwart. He was the he was the barbarian at the gate, right, to pre- pre- prevent the, the evil Trump from doing something awful. And I think, you know, I'm I'm hoping that cooler heads who can put their politics to the side will prevail and say prevent protecting us from the duly elected commander in chief is not your job. And in fact, it may have been treasonous and it's absolutely grounds for you to be removed. But what's happening, Glenn, is a collective yawn right from Biden on down. And and um, in fact, that letter I was referencing from the Republicans says um, the corporate media is reporting the story, quote, as if America were rendered a great service by General Milley. By the way, that's what Milley's been counting on, I believe, if he's the source. And I, we just took a quick look. Here's, I mean, CNN analyst uh, Mark Hurtling said what Milley did was ensure the guard wears, the guardrails were in place. I give him high marks for this based on what's described in that book. MSNBC analyst, retired General Barry McCaffrey, it's part of the deterrence of unwanted combat. Uh, it says, um, I think we ought to be fortunate. We got this Princeton grad, tremendous combat officer, extremely intelligent, law-based, trying to safeguard the transition to a duly elected President Biden administration. That's where the media is going with this. It's dangerous on many levels. It's despicable. These are the same people who spent four years screaming about democratic norms and about the threat to the constitutional order that the Trump administration poses. And yet here they are explicitly, not implicitly, explicitly advocating that the person who, whether you like him or not, is the person who was duly elected by the American people in a free and fair election in 2016 to be their president, in their view, has such poor judgment and is intellectually inferior to people like Mark Milley, who went to wherever, Princeton or, or whatever, and who studies the sacred text of white rage and white fragility, that it mm-hmm. is legitimate and even desirable to clandestinely transfer power 
from the person the American people erroneously elected and instead put it in the hands of somebody who's the guardian of the republic who nobody elected. That, Megan, this is, you know, it's kind of like the thing that ties together everything we've discussed since we started today, which is the reality is, is that the the liberal sector of the United States, led by the vast majority of the corporate media, which identifies with American liberalism and serves its agenda now, genuinely believes that Donald Trump and the Trump movement are inferior to them intellectually and morally and are a grave threat to the United States. And therefore, anything they do, anything they do in the name of stopping him, whether it's disseminating lies, whether it's deceiving this FBI, whether it's you know consuming our, our country in a fake scandal for four years, whether it's allowing generals to subvert and ignore presidential orders, they believe it's all justified because they're battling against a group of people, half the country, that they regard as their inferiors. And that is the spirit that's animating what they're saying. And who knows whether General Milley might have thought, you know, we got the 25th Amendment. Maybe I should do something with that if he saw Trump decompensating. Right. I have no idea what went through his head, but that really wasn't an available option to him if that's what he, in fact, felt, because that card had been played so many times, just like the impeachment card had been played so many times to have actually rendered something like impeachment kind of a shoulder shrug yawn situation. It's like another impeachment. Okay, this is what they do now. But you couldn't you can't do 25th Amendment now because they said that from almost day one of Trump's presidency. They completely burned all of their credibility with the public, justifiably. You know, I think there's a good analogy to that, which is there really is racism in the world and there really is misogyny in the world and there really is homophobia and transphobia and anti-Semitism in the world. But if you get to the point where you exploit those concepts and weaponize them cynically over and over for political advantage by just calling any one of your political adversaries a white supremacist or accusing reporters who are reporting on you of being misogynistic the way that Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post did today because Politico was going to report on her, or if you accuse anyone who questions or criticizes the Israeli government of anti-Semitism, you drain those concepts of all their meaning. It no longer stings because people come to believe that that just gets tossed around and that when it does, it no longer is meaningful. They trivialize those concepts. That is absolutely what has happened, that what happened with these constitutional safeguards like impeachment, they trivialized it and toyed with it and played with it for so long. They impeached them twice over trivialities. And as you say, they constantly talked about using the 25th Amendment against him to sow doubts in the public mind about his mental stability that maybe we don't know. We weren't there. Maybe the way that Trump handled his election defeat was so kind of unhinged that it got to the point where there were questions about his mental stability in the 25th Amendment might have been a viable process. I don't know. But as you say, we don't know. It wasn't an option because they burned their credibility to do that. You know what? It's if 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 Trump really was having mental faculty decline in a meaningful way at that time or thereafter, I would like to know. It would be relevant to the media, it would be relevant to the country as he might run again. But none of that will ever be taken seriously now. None of none of that will be. It'll all be seen as a political move against him, thanks to things like this. And just for the record, the notion that Trump was going to unleash war against China in his last few days in office, this this president was going to do that. It makes no sense, Glenn. So one does have to wonder what the hell was Millie doing? Like why? would he have been doing such a thing? You know, 
it makes so little sense for so many reasons, including the fact that the charge against Trump was that he was always too soft on China, that right. he wasn't sufficiently confrontational with them at the start of the COVID pandemic, that he he seemed to like uh, the leaders of China or respected them in that Trumpian way for being strong and tough. But he also prided himself on the fact that he was the first president in decades. And whatever you think about him, this is just indisputably true, that didn't start a new war. He didn't get the United States mm. into a new war in the four years of his presidency. You have to go back many decades to find a president about whom that's true. So the idea that in his last days, an office was going to just like randomly start a war with China, which he really never exhibited much animosity towards to begin with, mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's incomprehensible that that could possibly be true. And, the, you know, the problem, Megan, is, is that I just don't trust any of these people anymore. I don't trust what the Washington Post Same. and the New York Times say or what, you know, generals and, and intelligence officials and government say. I wish I did. It would be so much better if we Same. could. But we just but don't. I have to so say I feel like we're never going to know you're selling yourself short because you didn't trust these people ever. <laughs> really, it's been 20 plus years since you trusted any of them. And we've we've all just gotten a lot smarter lately. Uh, thanks to you and others like you. All right. Stand by uh, up. We're going to talk about with Glenn Greenwald about Don Lemon now calling for the shunning and shaming of Americans who don't believe exactly as he does. We'll get into it. Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back, everyone, to The Megan Kelly Show. I'm joined today by Substack journalist Glenn Greenwald, also a Pulitzer Prize winner. The wedge dividing... Americans into this COVID caste system. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's growing larger by the day. And Glenn recently published a Substack piece on the visual class division at the Met Gala. But I have to tell you, before we get to the Met Gala, Don Lemon, Don Lemon, as Tucker calls him, on Wednesday night, took it to a new level. He was taking aim at the some 46% of Americans who are not fully vaccinated. And he wants them to know, Glenn, he wants you to know and me to know he's had it. Here he is uh, just the other night. I think we have to stop coddling people when it comes to this and the vaccine saying, oh, you can't shame them. You can't call them stupid. You can't call them silly. Yes, they are. The people who ate it and abetted Trump are stupid because they believed his big lie. The people who are not getting vaccines, who are believing the lies on the internet instead of science, it's time to start shaming them. What else? Or leave them behind. So it's time to start shaming people, Glenn, because our moral, moral arbiters, uh, Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo, know better. Yeah, those intellectual and moral giants, Don <laughs> Lemon and Chris Cuomo, are going to guide us in our choices and punish us if we don't instantly submit to their superior wisdom. You know, I, I feel in part so enraged hearing that, mm -hmm. just that condescension for so many millions of people. 
for the crime of not immediately agreeing with their point of view. But I also think it's really important to hear them say that, that openly and that explicitly, because that is how they think. And, you know, I don't know what your experience has been, Megan, but, you know, in terms of the question of the vaccine, I did decide early on that I was going to take the vaccine, but I was very happy that I had the ability to inform myself about all the pros and cons and read as much as I could and make that decision for myself in consultation with my doctors based on my age and my health and every other consideration. And, you know, my husband had a different set of choices. He actually had COVID. He's a little bit younger. So we debated whether he should take it, given the natural immunity that he had. And we were happy he he had that choice. He took it. Today, my 14-year-old son got the vaccine. In fact, he just got it while we've been talking. I just got the picture. And I still am in doubt about whether that was the right thing to do. You know, we ultimately decided he should. But given that he's 14, do you know that 74 million people in the United States, 74 million are 18 years or, or younger. And the grand total of people who have died from COVID since the beginning of the pandemic 16 months ago, who are 18 or younger, is 362. 362 out of 74 million, a virtually non-existent risk for children who are now injecting with this vaccine, despite not knowing the long-term risk. So mm-hmm. I hope people get vaccinated. I believe in the vaccine. But I would want to be persuaded to take it and not bullied or coerced. And what they're going to do is they're just it's going to backfire because the more you hear people like Don Lemon telling you that you're stupid if you don't obey, the more the instinct is to just purposely defy what 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 he's telling you to do. That's how we got Trump in the first place. And they still haven't learned that lesson. I want to talk about Don Lemon for a second. Don Lemon thought that that Malaysia airplane was sucked up by a black hole. Don Lemon thought a woman being allegedly raped by Bill Cosby could have stopped it by biting his penis while she was being forced to perform oral sex. Don Lemon's an idiot. Um, And Don Lemon is in no position to be lecturing anyone when it comes to morals, nor is Chris Cuomo. Right. Chris Cuomo decided to dismiss all of the accusers against his brother, whose claims were backed up and verified by independent witnesses as part of, quote, cancel culture. He didn't give a shit about any anything his brother had done and is in no position to lecture us. Don Lemon is credibly accused of shoving his hands down, fondling his own balls and then rubbing his hands along the face of a complete stranger in a bar witnessed by a bartender who is independent, not connected to either man. Okay, there's a lawsuit about it right now. Lemon denies it. But I don't want to hear from Don Lemon on morals, on stupidity, which he is an expert on. Um, I don't want to hear from him at all. And this is a pattern for him. Yes, you're right. It's important that we see them say it so that we know what they really think about half the country. But we've had many lessons from Don Lemon when it comes to that. Who could forget this now infamous segment that he had with Rick Wilson and um, the the guy, Lee, I, I forget how you pronounce his first name, forgive me. But here they are talking about Trump voters before the election. Listen that Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane (laughs) next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience, uh, you know, the the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump um, that that wants to think that that Donald Trump's a smart one and they're y'all elitists are dumb. (laughs) <laughs> you, you elitist with your geography and your maps and your spelling, even though my your math and your reading. Yeah, you're reading, you know, your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte. All those lines on the map. 
Only them elitists know where Ukraine is. And those those Democrats with their maps, they think they're so smart. Look at him. He's crying. He's laughing so hard. All right. Forget Don Lemon. I've had enough of him. But this is not it's not just Don Lemon. It's not just Chris Cuomo, Glenn. It's a lot in the so-called elite media who are disturbingly in control of popular thinking. And, you know, I think the, the important thing to remember is that the history of the coronavirus pandemic is one of grave error. You know, in January, the World Health Organization endorsed the claim of the Chinese government that there was no evidence of person to person transmission in order to downplay the pandemic. In February and March, Fauci and the World Health Organization said that not only was wearing masks unnecessary if you were asymptomatic, but that it could actually be harmful. And they told us that for several months. For five months in the beginning of 2020, they said it's your moral duty to stay home and not go out for any reason, even to go to a deserted beach. If you do that, you're sociopathic and killing grandma. (laughs) And then suddenly the Black Lives Matter riots happen. And they told us it was our moral duty to go participate in densely packed street protests because racism was a greater threat to the public health than the coronavirus pandemic. And then, of course, for an entire year, we were told that you're not even allowed to suggest that we don't know the origins of the coronavirus, whether it came from a lab in Wuhan or whether it jumped species from bats or other animals. And now suddenly everyone recognizes that we have a real debate about that. So over and over, there are decrees from the really smart people who snop, you know, scoff at um, the idiots who don't obey has been nothing but one of one error after the next, incompetence and ineptitude, and yet they still continue to be so enamored of their own intellect that they actually want to now structure a society, Megan, no exaggeration, of segregation where you are a second-class citizen if you don't adhere to their judgment about what substances you should put into your body, regardless of how old you are, regardless of your health condition, regardless of whether you've already had COVID once or more and thus have natural immunity, they want to prevent you from having a job, from going into public places, from going on an airplane. They really do want a society where disobeying their superior judgment results in severe restrictions on your life, your ability Mm -hmm. to talk on the internet, your ability to express yourself. It is such an authoritarian mindset grounded in extreme condescension toward the intellect and morals of anyone who doesn't see the world as they see it. The only way around it is to be an Afghan refugee or someone sneaking across the southern border, none of whom is required to get a vaccine. That's that's your only way to avoid the big thumb of the federal government. Uh, But you're right. And their their judgment is everywhere. I mean, there was a there was an article out on The Daily Wire today talking about how Amazon temporarily in error. It was human error, Glenn, um, censored an advertisement for a new book coming from the Heritage Foundation that's critical of Black Lives Matter. It's called BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Oh, you know, it was a mistake. We didn't really mean to censor the ad, but, um, you know, it's been rectified. That mother of the fallen Marine killed with 13 service members in Afghanistan uh, while trying to evacuate people. She was critical of Joe Biden. She got her Facebook Account suspended and her Instagram uh, post taken down. Oh, it was done in error that we didn't mean to do that. Michael Flynn's wife just got her account suspended or canceled by Chase Bank um, they, because they didn't think it would be good for their reputation to do business with her. Oh, sorry, that was a mistake. You know, we, that was done in error. Why do all the errors always go against one particular party or people with one particular viewpoint or ideology? I mean, this is what I'm saying is, you know, there was a recent. Uh, announcement from PayPal, which is now, you know, central to our financial system. A lot of people 
need PayPal in order to earn a living, in order to transfer money and pay bills and receive money, that they are now partnering with the Anti-Defamation League, which used to oh, be a well-respected organization against anti-Semitism and has since earned a well-deserved reputation for being just a liberal advocacy group, kind of like the ACLU and others. And they're going to defer to who the ADL says is an extremist and cut off their ability to use PayPal. So we're going to have segregated financial services, segregated social media accounts, different ways that people can or can't access the media. Just this week, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressman Adam Schiff each separately wrote a letter to Amazon complaining about certain books that Amazon was, Mm. quote unquote, promoting because they're bestsellers that are about COVID and contain information that those politicians believe is misleading or otherwise unproductive. And they're essentially demanding that Amazon censor it. Censorship has become one of the dominant priorities of the Democratic Party. I mean, they've hauled CEOs of Twitter, Facebook, and Google to their committees three or four times in the last year to explicitly demand that they either censor more or suffer regulatory and legal reprisals. So this is becoming a really dangerous political faction. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, um, of of people throwing out you know r- ridiculous claims, you mentioned Jen Rubin today of the Washington Post. They're so-called conservative at the Washington Post. Such a joke, just like Nicole Wallace and Steve Schmidt are MSNBC's conservatives. (laughs) Um, What? I don't know that story. What is she doing? So the Politico was writing an article on the obviously bizarre fact that Jen Rubin has become the single favorite columnist for the Biden White House. They retweet her more than any other journalist by far. They pass around her articles more than any by far, because she is basically a more loyal spokesperson for the Biden White House than Jen Psaki is. So they love her. And <laughs> Politico amazing. did an article on how unlikely it is that she would serve that role, given that she was one of the most vicious critics of Barack Obama, you know, claiming that he was his allegiances were to Islam and not to the United States. Every toxic attack on Obama she was voicing because she was a huge fan of Mitt Romney just eight years ago. And now suddenly she's the leading Democrat. So they sent her, you know, a request for comment. And she wrote back this deranged email to Politico. And it's at the top. It said off the record. They didn't agree to that. She just proclaimed it. That doesn't and it work. basically was this rambling message saying, oh, of course, you people at Politico are yet again attacking a powerful woman. Your misogyny is so evident, you know, accusing them of just being misogynistic for reporting on her bizarre trajectory from, you know, GOP propagandist, lover of Mitt Romney to the leading propagandist for the Biden White House. And she just pulls out this misogyny accusation out of nowhere. And they publish the email. And Neera Tandon and other Biden White House officials accused Politico of having breached an off the record Mm -hmm. agreement, which they never actually met, entered with her as a journalist, you know, Megan, someone can't Mm -hmm. just send you an email and put at the top off the record that then you have to agree that they're allowed to order you not to to report it. So that was that was the the little controversy of the day, which she knows very well. Jennifer Rubin knows and Neera Tandon knows, too. But the sort of the overall elitism in all of this and the and the 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 one sided uh, censorship when it comes to points of view or behaviors, right, what have you, it's it's evident everywhere. And you've been on this sort of elitism for a long, long time, and you've lived it. Unlike AOC in her stupid dress, you've actually 
been consistent in pointing it out and calling it out when you see it. And it's everywhere when it comes to go to COVID. I saw you had a great piece not long ago talking about how when it comes to COVID, they refuse sort of the press and and those in charge refuse to apply the cost benefit analysis to any of these COVID debates. You know, it's like the elites can run to the mountains and to the beach and to Florida to avoid all of these restrictions that they're imposing on people. But it's the poor working class that have to stick around and suck it up. And you had a bit in there about Nancy Pelosi and mask restrictions. Um, and I guess it was a fundraiser not too long ago. What happened with her? Yeah, so Nancy Pelosi had a fundraiser for rich donors to the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, in, in Napa, the very upscale wine region near San Francisco, where she has her sprawling mansion. And it was an outdoor event, but it was held about a month after Los Angeles County had reimposed its mask mandates for large outdoor gatherings. And San Francisco had in place, just a few miles away where she lives and where liberals govern, a mask mandate that says that you should wear a mask anytime that you're in close contact with large numbers of other people, even outdoors. And yet this event was a huge number of rich Democratic donors, almost all of them white, sitting at tables, one on top of the next, like not a a molecule of social distancing. In fact, I would have been uncomfortable regardless of COVID, sitting that close to people, you know, even before COVID, they were right next to each other, breathing on each other, talking to each other. And then she was up front speaking. They were listening, sort of. Not one of them, Megan, was wearing a mask of the rich white donors who were seated at the table before even eating. They didn't have food. And then they had servants, almost all of whom were non-white, walking around, bringing water, you know, getting ready to serve the food. And they were all masked. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has become very commonplace now, where the kind of servant class has to wear a cloth over their face all of the time, while somehow people who are in richer or more elite positions don't have to. They're allowed to show their face. And that doesn't seem very scientific to me. I don't understand how people who are working hourly wages are more vulnerable to transmitting or contracting a a virus than people who are wealthier in an elite position. It's something we saw at Obama's birthday party where his 400 closest friends partied in an indoor tent with no mask while the waiters and servants wore masks. And then we saw it again at the Met Gala where AOC was walking out of, you know, the Met Gala. And there was a servant carrying the train of her gown. She was unmasked, waving like royalty to the adoring fans. And the servant behind her was wearing a mask. And it just is a very kind of vivid illustration of this growing chasm between cultural, political and financial elites on the one hand and the way that ordinary people on the other are treated that most people in this country are very well aware of. Mm-hmm. And sadly, all of our kids are in the surf class and all of them, they will be the ones masked and holding the train of AOC's dress. And that's exactly the way she wants it. And then when called out on her ridiculous hypocrisy, I've been trying to get this quote on the air for three days. I finally remembered to pull it, uh, Glenn. This is this is her defense after she took a, a, an appropriate rhetorical beating for her nonsense. Um, in response. OK, wait, here it is. I thought about the criticism I would get, but honestly, I and my body, (laughs) I and my body have been so heavily and relentlessly policed from all corners politically since the moment I won my election that it's kind of become expected and normalized to me. You see that she's just like Jennifer Rubin. No abuse 
that she takes from the press or any criticism she gets is real. It's just part of the ongoing policing and abuse of her and her body, because I presume she's a woman. She's a woman of color. She's you know a woman standing up for socialism by putting weird letters on a weird dress. Well, yeah, the the second part of the statement even makes more explicit that that is what she's saying. She said, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of this discomfort and anger about what I did is just people's discomfort from having a woman of color be in power. She blamed it on white supremacy and misogyny. She described her and her designer who is engaged to someone who's in the family of the family that founded Lehman Brothers and who's close to a billionaire, if not a billionaire, as a working class immigrant. Um, She emigrated from Toronto. You know, the trek from Toronto to Manhattan is a very, very arduous one where people face all (laughs) kinds of trauma and and dangers. And she made that trek and arrived safely in Manhattan with her, you know, billionaire boyfriend. So, yeah, of course, that was the response. Um, And, you know, honestly, what you're saying, I, you know, my view as a parent has changed in a lot of ways from since becoming a parent. It does infuriate me that my kids have to wear masks all day in school for nine hours and not see each other's faces. And, you know, despite the fact that the risk is so low. And then I watch AOC traipsing around on a red carpet with no mask of any kind, nor do any of the other celebrities near her have it. And you just see that it's not about anything scientific. It's about social control and creating a cast of people who believe they're exempt from the rules they impose on everybody else. Oh, it's infuriating. It um, is. I, we've got to discuss um, the, the Met Gala because I want to get your, a little bit more on that. But I also want to talk about there's this new series. OK, you may not have heard about this, but it's called it's it was it's coming out on CBS or it was. And it was going to be about activists. Right. And it stars Usher, Julianne Huff and Priyanka Chopra Jones Jonas. And I cannot wait to tell you what's happened to it and why um, I'm very much in favor of them not hosting an activist show. We'd love to know your thoughts on General Mark Milley in the in the meantime on his less than ethical phone call. We're going to take your calls in just a minute. Give us a call here. 833-44, like Syracuse is 44. That's why we put that in there. Megan, M-E-G-Y-N, like O-B-G-Y-N, but M-E-G-Y-N. That's a whole story, too. Thanks to my mom. 833-446-3496. Call in now. We're going to take your calls shortly. Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Welcome back to the Megan Kelly Show, everyone. It's Friday, so I'm ready to answer your calls and have some fun. Do you want to send a message to Don Lamont? <laughs> Thoughts on the border? Maybe a personal question about my life or career? We'll see. <laughs> Call me at 833-44-MEGAN. M-E-G-Y-N. That's 833-446-3496. In the meantime, back with me is Substack journalist Glenn Greenwald. So, Glenn, I had to ask you, because I have been to the Met Gala, um, and it was just as insufferable as you would think. But I thought it was, I didn't realize that Anna Wintour, a couple of years ago, was sad about the Met Gala and really thought that there was a massive problem with it and did something to fix it. Can you tell us what that was? Yeah, it was in 2014. And she started believing that it was insufficiently exclusive, that people who didn't deserve to be there were able to get in because in her view, the ticket prices were too low. They were only $15,000 a ticket. And she felt that enabled 
kind of a certain form of riffraff to be able to <laughs> vandalize her event. And so she raised Vandal. the prices to $25,000 a ticket in order to maintain the high level that she believes the Met Gala should exhibit. Oh, my God. And meanwhile, they're like, this is a charity event. This is a charity event. And that the charity they're supporting, it's like the Mets costume wing. I was like, they, t- they talk about it, like trying to defend the thirty five thousand dollars a ticket that it's now uh, by saying, like, it's for it's for ki- like it's like starving kids in Africa. No, it's to help the <laughs> costumes at the Met have more money and better cases. Yeah, well, that was, you know, that was the joke of AOC's going is that, you know, it's probably like one of the most vulgar testaments to the excesses of capitalism and inequality that has been conceived of since, you know, the parties of of Louis the 14th and the French aristocracy. And obviously she just wanted to go because she wanted to hang out with Rihanna and instead, you know, but she also wanted to keep her socialist street credibility. So at the last second, she's like, hey, why don't we just spray paint, you know, tax the rich on my dress as though like any of those liberal celebrities are going to be offended by that message. And that way I'll get to, you know, make my presence there something noble. Um, right. But yeah, you know, there's there's been articles in like town and country and sort of the the magazines of the landed gentry about how the Met Gala used to be the best of high society. And now it's been vulgarized by the fact that celebrities go who don't even care about the Met and probably don't even know what they're raising funds for. But you're right. If AOC is going to go to a charity gala, you would think it would be to help homeless people or people on the verge of eviction or something like that, as opposed to buying more extravagant costumes for the Met. Yes. And by the way, when I went to the Met Gala in the bathroom at the Met, there were a bunch of People whose names you would know, like pretending to be humping one another. Very classy event. And then the men's. So I went into the women's restroom and I saw that men and women in there doing that. All names you would know. And my husband went into the men's restroom and we met, you know, afterward. And there were two very well-known people snorting cocaine off of the bathroom in his bathroom. So it was like, oh, this is is very classy and exclusive. Anna, well done. Uh, Now, one of the groups that Anna Wintour is obsessed with is tennis players. And so it's no accident that, you know, she's had Roger Federer there. She had uh, she had Naomi Osaka there this year. And I wanted to spend a minute talking to you about that because Naomi Osaka was not only at the Met Gala, but she also wound up on Time's Most Influential People uh, this year, along with Meghan and Harry. I mean, it's crazy to me, Glenn, that you've got Alexei Navalny on there as as one of the world's most influential (laughs) people. And he really has been, along with like Harry and Meghan, Meghan Markle, like a C-list actress who wound up marrying a prince and royal life was too hard for her. So they ran kicking and screaming to their $14 million Montecito mansion. Okay, so that's who's on the list of the Time 100 this year. But I do have to tell you, um, I've been fascinated to talk to you and hear your thoughts on on sort of Naomi and Meghan, for that matter, two women of color in very, very prominent positions who you are not allowed to criticize at all. And you tell me why that is. Yeah, you know, well, so it's interesting. Um, Tennis has been, you know, probably the sport that has played the biggest role in my life. When I was young, I was obsessed with watching tennis. Like my childhood hero was Martina Navratilova. I was actually actually signed a contract to do a film about Martina Navratilova along with Reese Witherspoon. And then Martina made some comments about the trans movement and whether trans women should be able to participate in sports that got her kicked out of a bunch of LGBT groups. 
um, and kind of rendered radioactive. And so the project was killed. So I've been really interested in tennis for a long time. I have a couple of friends who play professionally on the, on the circuit now. And when Naomi Osaka made that announcement about how she was going to refuse to uh, do press afterwards, the press conferences that are mandatory for every player, um, you know, she sort of said, well, find me, go ahead and find me as though like her wealth, which is vastly greater than almost every other tennis player means she just gets to buy off having to abide by the same rules as the other players who can't afford to get those fines. And the sympathy that was so overwhelming in her favor, as though the minute you utter the term I'm suffering or I'm engaged in mental health or a young woman of color meant that she's the marginalized person. When in reality, Nomi Osaka is one of the most powerful people on the planet. She's one of the richest people on the planet. She is the highest earning female athlete in the world. She made $55 million last year. She's well on her way to being a billionaire by the time she's 30, a billionaire. Mm-hmm. She you know, is in, carries incredible cultural cachet. But if you criticize her or Meghan Markle, and you just told the story of Meghan Markle, you get accused of bullying because they're you're, they're supposed to be looked at as these weak and marginalized people, which A, is incredibly ironic to talk about strong women athletes as being these fragile little China dolls who crumble at the, the minute you criticize them. But I also think it exhibits the kind of framework that we've been taught to see the world through, which is class is co- totally irrelevant. So if someone's extremely rich, it doesn't really count as a metric for how you evaluate them. The only things that matter are gender and race. So a black woman who's on her way to being a billionaire at the age of 23 is supposed to be considered marginalized and less powerful than say some out of work white coal miner in West Virginia, whose entire community has been ravaged by the opioid epidemic and who hasn't had a decent job in 20 years because it got shipped overseas. It's such a distorted way of looking at the world, but people mm-hmm. like that are the beneficiaries of it. That's so well said. So well said. And that, that the, the one that really incident that really showed it with Naomi was when she had that moment, she got emotional at a press conference after all the nonsense, after she said she's an introvert and she can't deal with press and so on and so forth. But then went on the cover of Time and went on the cover of Sports Illustrated and went on, was the last person who she lit the Olympic torch. Now she's at the Met Gala. Now she's Time 100. She has a Barbie. She had a documentary made about her. But this one little guy from, I think it was like some Cincinnati sports paper says to her like, you know, how do you reconcile all the media appearances? plus what you say is an introverted nature and she was like overwhelmed and then her her agent came out and he was like he's a bully he's disgusting came after this poor guy probably makes a 40 grand a year if he's lucky and he and the media went with that he was her bully i mean there's no job more difficult than working for a local paper especially in like a smaller mid-sized town like cincinnati and then your sports columnist on on top of it so you're totally dispensable I'm sure he makes exactly what you said, maybe even less. He has no job security at all. These papers close more often than they hire and lay off huge numbers of people. He has a very precarious job that's very difficult. He probably has to write, you know, 20 articles a a week. So just working day and night. And he, I don't know if you heard it, the audio, but the question was asked so respectfully. Yes, And it was was a very valid question. It was just like, hey, you, on the one hand, you say you have a great deal of problems dealing with press. But on the other hand, you're doing a lot of press for these other ventures. Like, how do you, as you say, how do you reconcile that? She burst into tears, left the press conference, did come back, but then to call him who is as marginalized as it gets in society, her bully, 
even though most people couldn't dream of having life like Naomi Osaka, shows that really distorted prism through which everyone insists we we view the world. The hypocrisy of it. I mean, it just it it drives me nuts and it drives me nuts that Meghan and Harry are out there saying, be kind, be kind as they stick the knife into the royal family while Prince Philip is dying and say somebody in the family is a racist. And by the way, they didn't care if I was about to kill myself. But be kind, everyone be kind. And by the way, protect the environment. Oh, wait, I'm just going to go on this private jet and go off for my polo match in Aspen, which is what Prince Harry did while he's lecturing us about (laughs) preserving the environment. I mean, and how they want their privacy, except for their 50 million from Netflix and Spotify and now the time 100 and the airbrushed cover, which I was saying on GB News the other night, was absolutely perfect because it reduced him, made him smaller, which is exactly what's happened since he married her, made it airbrushed away all of their realities, right? Like their flaws, whatever they may be, whether it's receding hairline or what have you. That's exactly what they want done and what they're doing in their sort of PR campaign. I could go on. Um, but I got to tell you about this one thing. OK, this is Debbie Murphy, our producer. Um, she's really been wanting us to get to this. She also is one of those hard trodden immigrants from Canada. God knows what she had to do to get here from there. And actually, she went the other way is the truth. Um, okay, CBS is now scrapping its competition show, The Activist, after backlash and turning it into a documentary. Um, this is from the website Mediaite. They had, they'd been launching the series called The Activist, and it was going to be a model for a competition show uh, where they showed a wide audience, the passion, long hours and ingenuity that activists put into changing the world, hopefully inspiring others to do the same. Well, even the far left, Glenn, didn't like it. I mean, the right, I'm sure, was rolling its eyes. And but the far left said this is performance activism. That's not the real thing. We can't have a show about that. And the thing that jumped out to me about this is just perfection. And it is still going to be a documentary. So we're still seeing these people. It's going to be hosted by Usher, Julianne Huff, and Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Okay. Now, um, Julianne Huff got in trouble a couple years ago. I know this. I, I saw it after I left NBC because she actually wore blackface. She went as one of the characters from Orange is the New Black. Uh, she wore blackface on Halloween and was photographed by many people. I had to do a big pu- public mea culpa. Priyanka Chopra Jonas endorsed skin lightening um, and got in a lot of trouble over for endorsing this cream in India to make your skin lighter, which, you know, is sort of a racist thing to do because it suggests that lighter skin is better than darker skin. And Usher was repeatedly infected or was uh, accused and sued many times of repeatedly infecting women with herpes without telling them as required under the laws of several states. So these are the three. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Couldn't be more perfect in a way. They should be interviewed by Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo about their new show. (laughs) How to make us all better people. The backlash to it was so intense. Um, I think it was one of the most ratioed tweets on Twitter when they unveiled it. And it's very rare to see a show that planned and that promoted have to be radically reworked because, as you say, it wasn't just one sector of the society that reacted with revulsion. It was pretty much everybody (laughs) thought it was the most preposterous thing in the world that you're going to take social activism and turn it into some kind of like commercialized competition led by celebrities, those in particular. 
It's amazing. And you know, it's just, it's a good reminder because we do get lectured at every turn in our lives now, whether you're, you know, trying, if your wife gets canceled at the bank or your book doesn't get promoted or, you know, even if you're a black conservative, you can't get your films made. Just ask Shelby Steele, right? Who's like had had real trouble getting his uh, his movie, What Killed Michael Brown on Amazon. It's just a reminder that the people judging us all the time are frankly human. They make mistakes. They do and say stupid shit, just like everyone does. And we used to be at a place in our society where we understood that and we weren't so awful to one another about it. Glenn, gosh, I love talking to you. I could talk to you every day of the week. We got to do like a co-host situation because you're so interesting. Thank you for doing this. I love being here, Megan. It's always great. I'm always happy to come back anytime. Yay. I'm going to take you up on that. All right, right. up next, we're taking your calls and we have a special announcement up next I'm excited to bring to you. Um, Call us in. Let us know what you think about the 10,000 immigrants waiting to cross. uh, Well, they've crossed our southern border and they're sitting there under a Texas bridge right now. Uh, Or let us know whether you think General Mark Milley should be tried for treason. 833-44-MEGYN. That's 833-446-3496. Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Welcome back to the Megan Kelly Show, everyone. Phone lines are open at 833-44-MEGYN. That's 833-446-3496. And uh, we have a very special first caller today, uh, and it involves a special announcement that we want to bring to you about our executive producer, Steve Krakauer, who you may know if you've been listening to our podcast this past year. He's not with us this week for a very good reason. He and his wife just had a baby. They have a new daughter named Mia. Steve, how are you? Hi, Megan. First time caller, long time listener. This is, uh, <laughs> this is exciting to be on this side of <laughs> Congratulations. We're so happy for you. And how is it going so far? We're showing some pictures of you and the babe. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, it's going well. You know, this is our second uh, child. Although it's been five years that we had, my, we had our son. Uh, Jack five years ago, almost to the day. Um, and uh, Mia came Monday. Everyone's doing really well. You're um, kind of uh, piecing together about three hours of sleep or so a night. So I'm a little bit delirious, but uh, but otherwise it's been going great. She's doing great. And uh, mom's doing well. And I was just kind of a bystander, but uh, but very happy with everything. Everything went okay with the delivery? Everything went, went okay. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty smooth. I mean, we, you know, I say that as someone who was just kind of sitting in the chair next to, to my wife. <laughs> it was so um, easy for me. Hours or so. I know exactly. They were trying to get me to cut the umbilical cord. I was like, please do not give me the scissors. And it was just, I just wanted to just kind of be a moral support. I, I don't want to have anything, you know, potentially go wrong, but everything went well. I was not involved. Uh, you- I was just there to uh, cheer up. That totally reminds me of Doug. He was—he is not somebody who deals with needles or blood very well at all. He was like, I'm, I'm going to stay on this side of the drape, right? I'll be on this side of the drape. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I just looked right at Megan. And I was not i was not looking anywhere else. I was like, just, just look at me, lock eyes. I'm not looking that's, anywhere. I'm going to pass out. I think that's very smart. But Steve's wife is named Megan, too. Um, I think it's very smart because let's, let's face it. I mean, a, a good husband-wife relationship has to have, you know, a lot of things that in order to make more babies, you need to be able to look at the other person and think think certain thoughts that are tough if you see certain things. <laughs> yes, I, I just wanted to, you know, just keep my focus. Um, I, 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 I did my part, which was very minimal, uh, the best of my ability. But no, it was great. Everyone's doing well. 
Um, and yeah, it's been, you know, it's, it's just sort of getting the, getting back into the, into the mode of having a newborn now, which is yes. challenging, but also fantastic. How about Jackson? How, he, how is he doing with baby Mia? You know, it's funny. And he's been, you know, he's real, real cute about it. You know, talking about how, how excited he is and he's wearing his, his new brother's shirt yesterday, the soccer practice, but he's very like nervous around her. He, we haven't even gotten to be to the point where he can like hold her. Um, he's, I, I think he just thinks of her as she's like very fragile and he doesn't want to, you know, do anything that's going to mess up. So he's been very cautious. Although I think, I think we're going to, we're going to uh, approach that uh, this weekend. Try to, Perfect. You know, Good. That's, a, that's not a bad way to start off when you've got uh, a little toddler at home and introduced to a new baby. So have you been listening to the show? What critiques do you, how do you think we're doing without you? <laughs> I have, no, it's been so interesting. I, I have to say, you know, I, I was listening to, uh, some of Brett Weinstein on Spotify and then I got some of uh, YouTube with the fifth column guys yesterday. And I actually was on Wednesday, I was in the car and I was like, oh, let me turn on. And there was Scott Galloway. And it was a great conversation. I loved it. Um, and so, yeah, it was, just, it was very unique to kind of be for, you know, the, a year of being behind the scenes and now being kind of a listener and a fan. Um, I thought it was a great week of shows. I was listening to Ben Greenwald <laughs> before I got on it. That was great. Awesome. Well, we've had a couple of technical snafus, which now I can't blame on you because you're not here. <laughs> but, you know, we're I'll working it place. out. As you know, we're a new place. show. We don't, don't haven't figured we haven't figured everything out yet. That's right. Week two. Uh, I, I still will take the blame. You know, I'm, I'll still serve in that role. Well, we can't wait for you to come back. Debbie's doing a great job holding on the fort without you, but uh, everyone misses you. And just so much love to you and Megan and little Jackson and newest little Mia. We love you guys and wish you all the best. And don't even think about us other than as a as a source of news and entertainment until you come back. That's right. I'll be I'll be a consumer still. Um, but no, thank you uh, to everyone there. I'm excited to get back, but um, I'm now going to uh, going to go back to Mia. Uh, much love. The newest member of Thanks, the Debbie. Devil May Care media family, little Mia Krakauer. Um, all right. So we're we're going to take our first caller as well. And we're, our phone lines are still open, so you can call in. We're, we've got a good chunk reserved today. We're figuring that out as well. 833-44-MEGAN. That's 833-446-3496. Um, all right. Let's talk to, let's see, Dale in Iowa, which caller number two. What's on your mind, Dale? Hey, Megan. I am a 12-year veteran of the U.S. Army. I'm a first-time caller, but a long-time viewer and listener from America Live, Kelly File, your podcast, and your book, Settle for More, is still one of my favorites. Thank you. I'm calling regarding General Milley. And yes, the call to China is problematic, but to me, the call to – if it's true that Speaker Pelosi called him and then he – met with all of the people that report to him, and then reached out to the command generals of whether it's Pacific Command, Central Command, the fleet. To me, that's illegal. Mm-hmm. He is prohibited by law from – he has no command authority. He's an advisor to the president. So if he did that, that would fall under the UCMJ. The, obviously, you're a lawyer. You know, that's the military's code of justice. So he – if that were if that's true, then he should be tried under that for potential court martial. Then, right. then the call to China, whether if if, if again true that the secretary of, uh, that Miller, secretary of defense at the time, and he made that call, then we were talking about in the area of treason. Yeah, I mean, I I hate to throw that word around, but I I have to say I think you're right. Well, you I think know, this circumstance warrants it. It's like, I mean, 
if you're if calling up the Chinese and telling them there's some there might be something off with the sitting U.S. president and you're going to stop a potential military strike against them, is it treason? I don't really know what is. Um, and we better get to the bottom of this. I mean, the Republicans are not in control of the House at the moment, but I don't see how the Democrats blow this off and don't have any hearings on this. I mean, they are going to have him in front of them next week. So you can guarantee that there's going to be questions about it. And we'll see what Millie says. But this uh, this looks terrible and is a dangerous, dangerous precedent. And I think, you know, honest Democrats will admit that, too. Um, all right. Let's talk to Gene, number caller number four, who's got some thoughts on Don Lemon. Hey, Gene. How are you, Megan? Uh, so good to hear you on the radio. Uh, oh. I miss you on TV, and um, you're a beautiful and talented voice that needs to be heard. And Thank now you you. Uh, you come on right after uh, Glenn Beck on my drive home or drive to work, and here in Texas. And I'm glad you're on the radio. That's nice. I love thinking of that. Love thinking about you down in Texas and my other friend up in Iowa. You know, like out in the heartland and outside of the coastal elites, just getting the news in a way that you trust. I appreciate it. Thank you. But um, yes, I have a brother who is a veteran that has, you know, has chosen not to get the, uh, the vaccine for uh, you know, religious reasons. And, uh, you know, for, our, for this administration and for Don Lemon, you know, to, you know basically, you know, basically telling people that they're, they're as bad as the Taliban, you know, mm-hmm. because they don't want to get the uh, they don't want to get the vaccine. And. The entire day, you know, the, the entire time, you know, during the uh, the debacle in Afghanistan, you know, both women and Maddow as well, all they could talk about was mask mandates. Um, you know, about a, a vaccine that, you know, back in you know, a year ago they would never want to touch. Yes. Of, you know, it had something to do with Trump, and now it's just the hypocrisy. It, it's uh, it's overwhelming. Yeah, as plain as the nose in your face. hundred percent. You know, one of the sound bites we didn't get to today was Joy Reid going off about how, yes, I did have my doubts under Trump of the vaccine. She was one of the people who stoked those doubts and others. And now they want to look at all the others who have some doubts, not based on that nonsense about like, well, Trump's going to do something to the vaccine, but about, you know, based on a year of Fauci misleading us and reversing himself and say, oh, you're a bunch of rubes. You're all so dumb. We know better. And it is it is infuriating. Um, And it is maddening. I feel the same. I'm like, who are these people to lecture to us? And by the way, all of the media censorship is played into it as well. Right. Because the people don't trust the media. They think that some hidden truth is being hidden, uh, you know, concealed from them. It's better. It's better to let people figure it out for themselves. Uh, But that we've decided to go a different way. Anyway, uh, I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. All right. Now I want to talk to uh, let's see, looking for Ron from North Carolina. Hey, Ron. Hey, Megan. Good to talk to you again after 10 years. <laughs> yeah, did we talk 10 years I ago? On, I was on your talk show, or not your talk show, your midday news show, uh, November of 2011 on the baby Lisa case. I'm a private investigator. Oh, my God, Ron. That's so crazy. Can I tell you, I was just talking about that case the other day with two people who were involved in it. And I was, we may do an update on that. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you again. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I was actually heavily involved in that. You, I don't, I don't want to bore the listeners with it, but I, you interviewed me on the missing phone part of the case. Okay. And, uh, you know, that somebody uh, allegedly made some phone calls. And actually, ironically enough, it was the only time I was on because Bill Stanton, the 
guy who was trying to do some investigations told one of your producers that if I was ever on again, he would not appear on your show. <laughs> uh oh. Oh, I love Wild Bill Stanton. I, I don't. I don't know that piece of the story. <laughs> well, what's on your mind today? Well, I just wanted to see if you uh, you were going to do. I know you, you know you're in a different uh, medium now, and wanted to see if you're going to do any follow ups on that. It's still very open here, and and mm. uh, I was actually called in the FBI's office a few months after you and I spoke, and was told to stop interviewing people on the case. I'm a former news uh, news director, uh, radio news, and uh, that's kind of how I got involved with this through that and and being that a private is... investigator here. And That's crazy. Called me and said, hey, uh, we don't want you talking to any more people of potential interest. And we also don't want you to admit publicly that we even talked to you today. Oh, well, yeah, I can see you took that direction very well. Uh, um, <laughs> well no, we may, so we may do indeed now, right? do a follow up on baby Lisa. People may remember this is this little 10 month old baby that was taken from her crib in the middle of the night. I mean, seemingly without a trace, no fingerprints were found on the windowsills, on the cribs, uh, on anything. And everyone thought it was the parents, but there was no proof of that. And um, she, she never was found. Uh, let me go to Kevin in New, New York, who's got a question, as I understand, about journalism. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Megan, you know, every time I hear, congrats, by the way, in the show and all that, and every time I hear you throw out your name and you spell it, I remember you saying this a while back, I forget who said it, but someone aggravated you by calling you Medjin. Yeah. <laughs> I can never, yeah. never pick up that story. <laughs> anyway, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, you mentioned like Don Lamont and the others, and even on all sides and stuff, but I, I just wonder, you know, what is the, who, in your opinion, other than yourself, who could be like the neutral, who is it possible to have a neutral person to have some kind of like journalism summit to get everybody, all these characters from whether it's, you know, you know, TV or radio or wherever, and just have it out. Wouldn't that be fun? And that who mm -hmm. could possibly broker that? Who would just do battle? You mean like a, like a Hannity versus Maddow type of situation? Oh my God. Wouldn't that be great? Cause it just seems, <laughs> it's, it, needs, it seems to be, it's all, it's very frustrating to have it like every, you know, four years or eight years when you have like a national, you know, presidential debate and you get to see all of the bullshit flat right out on, on in the open. It seems that should happen more often now. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I don't know if anybody's ever going to do that because everyone's so like they're well paid and they're well healed and they don't want to have to subject themselves to that sort of cage match. But I will say, picking up on a couple of calls that we've had now and, and your point, Someone asked me recently whether whether I think we could get back to objective journalism and less partisanship. And I don't think so, because I think not only did the media c totally reveal its bias uh, in the past you know, election and under Trump, they revealed their hatred, their hatred for the other half of the country, right? For anybody who's not a far left progressive. That's tough to forget. <laughs> Even if they start reporting in a way that's more fair, you know, they hate you. Um, and that's a deep, deep ongoing problem. Listen, I'm so excited to talk to you guys. I've never had a show where I get to talk to the viewers and the listeners, and I appreciate it. And I don't want you to miss the show next week. On Monday, we're going to have Dr. Drew here, uh, and we're going to talk about anything and everything. And then next Friday, my pal Tucker Carlson's coming on the show. Really looking forward to that. And today's show is going to be available on any podcast platform for free and on YouTube at youtube.com slash Megan Kelly. Thanks, everyone.
Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 